Lord, we are grateful to be here in your courts. Better is one day here than thousands elsewhere. We pray now as we continue to worship you through the understanding of your word that, Lord, your spirit would speak to each and every one of us. Bring to us a word we need to hear for ourselves this morning. And I pray that um, your word would be a transforming word in our lives. I ask this, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. When I was about to uh, graduate college, my girlfriend uh, um, of two years and I began to talk about what are the next logical steps in our relationship. And we talked about possibly getting married. But I had recently become rather passionate about my relationship with the Lord and thought it better if we just kind of slow down. What happened was that we ended up parting as good friends. But um, my life then took a deep turn into the Lord. And the Lord and I had a pretty big fight on whether or not I should be in the ministry. Um, I resisted nothing short of Jonah. And the Lord would not relent. So I told him I would accept the assignment, but I reserved the right to quit. Think I'm stubborn? (laughs) Well, The next three years, or four, I worked three part-time jobs, I went to school full-time. My life was full. And there was no time for dating, or thinking about marriage, or families, or anything like that. But when that came to an end and I began to serve as a pastor in ministry, I began to think about my dreams for a wife and a family. I had watched my friends that I had grown up with one after another after another get married, one after another after another start having babies. And there I was, in my later 20s, single, with no prospects on the horizon. Me! My wife's laughing because she knows. Well, I finally, out of my own frustration, decided that I just needed to give up. And I decided that, you know, my sense of calling could provide for me what it was that I was looking for. I could have that sense of deep intimacy with God. And I could have that sense of deep, healthy family with the people of the church. And so, I simply gave up my longings, my musings, my commiserating, all of those things. And I had a great next year, filled with lots of joy. And then Marsha walked into my life. And everything changed again. It was not what I expected. 
What surprised me, though, was how accurate my assumption was that I could find what I was looking for in my relationship with God and in my relationship with the people of the church. God's people. It is true of all of us. We all have a deep, ingrained, and unconscious desire for intimate relationship with our Creator. And that desire expresses itself in many longings, many human longings, which include love, personal knowledge of others, security, strength, forgiveness, joy, peace, meaning, and even something that exists beyond us in this lifetime. Our text today is Psalm 84, and it was written by a pilgrim who wrote of his deep longing for God. He longed to be near the Lord in Zion. And while often our longing, that deep unconscious longing, is, does not come necessarily to the forefront of our consciousness. For this pilgrim, he was very conscious of his longing for God and very passionate. He desired to dwell with God in Jerusalem where the temple of the Lord was located. I invite you now, if you have your Bibles, to open them up to Psalm 84. We're going to look at this. And we're going to look at the (coughs) deep longing and the pilgrim's heart and the pilgrim's way to God. Psalm 84 begins with a superscription that provides direction to the worship leader and worship team. Just as our worship leaders and worship team lead up here, so in the temple of God there were worship leaders and a worship team. Scholars tell us that the getit in this superscription, can you guys put that up? There you go. Is a reference either to a particular tune or a particular musical instrument that was to be used during the singing of this psalm. And the sons of Korah referred to a group of musicians who were the dominant worship leaders in Jerusalem after the people of God returned home from their exile in Babylon. This may well actually give us a clue to the writer's deep longing and passion to be with God in his courts, in his temple in Jerusalem. Although this is only speculation. But certainly, distance makes the heart grow fonder. What we need to recognize as we read this psalm together is that for the people of God and for the Old Testament, Access to the presence of God and the Lord's temple in Jerusalem was synonymous. We think 
and rightly so, that we can have access to God anywhere and everywhere. And that is true because of what God has done. Himself coming in human flesh, in the person of Yeshua, living His life and dying on a cross, making the one great sacrifice (coughs) so that no other sacrifice ever needs to be made again that we may have access to God. No longer is God limited to a place. In fact, for those who believe in Jesus, Jesus has promised to send us His Spirit who makes His dwelling with us. We have access to God while we're here. We have access to God when we leave here. We have access to God wherever we are because for those of us who believe God is with us. But that was not true in the Old Testament. For the sacrifice of the Messiah, the Savior had not been made. Sacrifices were made day and night at the temple of God. And that was the only place where the Lord's mercy and forgiveness and blessing flowed from them to his people. God had chosen to dwell among his people there, and there was no other place like it in all the earth. Now as we look at this psalm, and this special relationship with the Lord in Zion, in Jerusalem, in the temple itself, We're going to look at the psalm as the writer has written it in three sections. There is the longing for the Lord. There is a seeking the Lord. And there is connecting with the Lord. Each of these sections is associated with a beatitude. That is a special blessing from the Lord. And we're going to look at each section and each beatitude. So let's look at the longing for the Lord. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King And my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Remember what we learned in these Psalms of Zion. Selah means to stop for a moment and reflect upon it. So let's do that. The psalmist expresses his deep longing of his soul to be where the Lord dwells, that is, in the courts of his temple in Jerusalem. This is the dwelling place that is so lovely to him, that his soul longs for, and that his heart sings for joy. It is there 
by the altars of sacrifice that God's mercy and forgiveness and blessing flows. God will surely be there. And anyone who goes there will be close to God, assured of his presence. The author even pictures this security and blessing (coughs) as he imagined a bird who makes its home near the altars in the courtyard of the temple. Her babies dwelling there securely in the protection of the great protector and in the promises of the great promise keepers. As I thought about this imagery of the bird, I couldn't help but think of what Jesus said to the people who had gathered by the Sea of Galilee. Thousands of them. And he began to teach them. And he talked to them about the blessings of God. And he talked to them about worry and anxiety. And he said, why do you worry? God feeds the birds of the field. Trust God. And he said, today's worry is enough for today. Jesus was talking to them about realizing that God is the great protector and he is the great promise keeper. And he will provide and protect for his people. And that's precisely what he does. No wonder, no wonder we may long for God. Now, I don't know if you realize how important longing for God is. But if you've ever found your devotional time getting dry and tired, and for some of you younger people, probably not, but after you do it for 40 or 50 years, sometimes you get to running around, you got work, you got stuff with the kids, and you think, ah, I'll get back to this, and you don't get back to it. And things can sometimes get rote and tiresome for us, can they not? And the question is, what do we do about that? How does that change? How do we not just go through the motions with the Lord? The answer is, not that we ask God to help us to keep our devotional time. Not that we ask God to help us to do more of those rote rituals. But that we ask God to place a longing in our hearts a desire for him that we had when this whole relationship with God began. Twenty-three years into full-time ministry, I had never taken a sabbatical. Church didn't have sabbaticals, at least that church didn't back then. And... um, I was notorious for not taking my vacation time or all of it. My wife's over there going. And I got to a point where I had pushed so hard and pushed so long 
and I was burnt out. I was toast. I was done. And the church said, Craig, we've been considering a sabbatical you asked us to. We think you ought to take your sabbatical now. This was March, and I said, no. I'm not taking it until the summer. So, I don't care what happens, because what had initiated this was an accusation from a staff member that was just totally untrue. And they knew it was untrue. And he knew it was untrue. So I said, let somebody else supervise this person, send us to marriage counseling, fire me. I don't care what you do. I'm just done for. And I was hoping to actually go and study abroad for part of that three-month sabbatical that we were thinking about. And one of the leaders sat me down and he said, Craig, I am really worried about you. He said, I don't think you should go anywhere. I think you need to spend three months falling in love with God all over again. It was the wisest advice I had ever received. So I set my goals for sabbatical, to fall in love with God again, to fall in love with my family again, and the third one, which I didn't think I had much that I could say or do about it, was to have my family perhaps, fall in love with me again. I'll tell you, I started out on that sabbatical. It was the hardest first month of my life. I had been traveling at F-15 speeds, and all of a sudden, the brakes were on, and I was like a 90-year-old my Ciudante, driving some old vehicle, 20 miles an hour, below the speed limit, down a side street, where the speed limits are only 30. It was brutal, but necessary and good. And I spent time every day asking God, to fill me with a longing for him. And I spent every day seeking him. I spent every day with my family. And for the first time, I got up with my wife and sat down with her while she got ready to go to work, made her coffee, spent time with her and prayed with her before she left. I was always out already running. And those three months, things changed dramatically. And God restored my heart. And he placed a longing 
in my heart for him that I haven't lost since and that I know I need to nourish because I can expend myself beyond where I should. And I know that when things get to be too rote or too ritualized, I need to be asking God to give me a longing in my heart for Him. Because there is a quality about that that draws me closer to God. Where He can be that great protector and that great promise keeper. And I can experience the reality of that in my life. This section ends, though, with a beatitude. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. There in the house of the Lord, or when we are in the presence of the Lord, our prayer and our praise can rise up to Him. And we know that He receives it. For those of us who come here every week, There is something special about getting together, is there not? And when you are apart from here, do you notice that even when you go to church somewhere else, it isn't quite the same? It's not because they're not worshiping God. But it's because we know when we're together, God is in the midst of us and we are in the midst of Him. And there is something special in the community that we are a part of because we belong to each other as well as Him. And when our prayer and praise rise up to Him, we know that we are connected with Him. And He is connected to us. Do we not? When we are here worshiping, our worries, our fears, our doubts, our concerns, our hurts, they fade away. And what we are caught up in is the awesome majesty and beauty and consolation and light and love of the Holy One, our God. And for a moment in time, order is restored in our lives. Because there is nothing more important than Him. Well, the second section in this psalm goes from longing for God to seeking God. Let's read this section, verses 5 through 9. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valleys of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. 
Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Let's take a moment and pause on this. Unlike the first section that ended with a beatitude, this section actually begins with a beatitude. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose hearts are the highway to Zion. The beatitude cites a special blessing of strength that comes from God for those who seek to be with the Lord. Pilgrimages to Jerusalem were often fraught with physical danger from robbers and highwaymen, as well as the hardships of traveling through a dry and arid land. It can be unforgiving in that place if a person is alone or gets lost or is injured. This is why pilgrims often traveled together in caravans to Jerusalem. You may recall in the Gospel of Luke that when Jesus was 12 years old, he came to Jerusalem with his parents on their annual pilgrimage during the Passover. Likely he was there for his bar mitzvah. And when they left, Joseph and Mary returning to Nazareth, they realized at some point Jesus was not with them. Now what parent would not realize that their son or daughter isn't with them? Well, if you're traveling in a caravan, it is likely that you assume your child is with you, since your child is a man and knows he's supposed to be there. When they realize that Jesus is not with them, they return to Jerusalem. They find him teaching the elders in the temple. So journeys and the pilgrimage to Jerusalem could be fraught with danger. While it was often taxing, nevertheless, people endeavored to go to that place because it was sacred, because the Lord was present there. The writer speaks of this journey when he talks about the hearts are the highways to Zion. This may well refer to the decision to seek the Lord and walk down those highways, those pathways to Jerusalem, but it may also be a veiled reference to a metaphorical journey within the heart that seeks intimacy with God. Whether the journey is physical or whether it is metaphorical, it will take the pilgrim through the valley of Baca, Now, scholars tell us that Baca is not really a place, but a shrub that grows in the dry, waterless regions. Thus, the valley of Baca was not a place, but an experience. Many scholars suggested that another way, a better way to translate the valley of Baca, is to think of it as the valley of drought and tears. Even though the pilgrimage will leave the pilgrim to be with the Lord in his very presence, 
it does not mean that the journey will be hunky-dory, simple and easy all the way there. Pilgrimage can be difficult, bring sadness, exhaustion can set in. The pilgrim likely will want to even give up. But by continuing to long for the Lord and continuing to seek the Lord, the pilgrim will discover that the Lord will bless them from strength to strength for each day, or perhaps even moment for moment, as the pilgrim needs strength for the journey. God will give whatever it takes until the pilgrim passes through the valley of drought and tears and finds relief in the clear pools of fresh, clean water. It's not unusual for unbelievers and believers, new believers, to think that when we're proclaiming the good news in Jesus, that it means if we accept Jesus as our Savior, everything is going to be good for the rest of our lives, and we're not going to have any more struggle. Wrong. And for those of us who have been on this journey for a little while, we know that's wrong. And for those of us who were taught right, well, we got that then from the start. Jesus said to his disciples, Guys, I got bad news and I got good news for you. The bad news is, in this world, you're going to have some hard stuff. The good news is, I've overcome it. I can redeem it. So walk with me. The truth is, God doesn't remove the struggle from our life. There is a sanctifying nature to suffering that is important for us. It grows us. It teaches us. It shows a witness to the world. It strengthens our faith. This is why God allows us to go through these things and let us be clear about it. This world is a sinful place. And if we are to live in it, then we will experience the consequences of sin, even if they're not in coming from us in our lives, because there are consequences of it going on all around us, all the time. And we're a part of that as well in the lives of others. But time and again, the Word of God records throughout the history of God's people that the Lord has provided them strength for the journey. It's been almost five years that I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And I remember 
for those six to eight weeks that I spent time trying to figure out next steps and what to do, my mind went all over the place. It went from my wife to my kids to the church to God to death to everything. And one of the things I decided is my mind was going to continue wandering through all of these things, trying to play out all of these scenarios, and I was driving myself nuts. And it was exhausting. And then I remembered what Jesus said, today's worries are enough for today. Right? So I decided that I would take it one day at a time. Just one day at a time. Ask for God for strength for just that day and not try to worry about it anymore. And what I found was that God met me every day. And I got strength upon strength for each one of those days and each one of those experiences. Isn't that what the 12-step teaches to those who are struggling with addiction? that God will give you the grace you need moment by moment if you will just continue to stay focused on Him in the moment. God provides strength for those who seek Him. This is why we believe what Isaiah wrote. They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now while the last two verses of this section may seem like a disconnect to us, it was not. The psalmist was offering up an intercessory prayer for the king, the anointed one, who is the shield or protector. Both the Old and the New Testaments teach us that our experiences are tied to our leaders. So we are encouraged to pray for them. And that is an important thing. I can tell you that I have enjoyed and appreciated your prayers for me as your senior pastor. And it has meant the world to me and my family. It has strengthened us through many things. And I want to encourage you to be in prayer for Pastor Tim and his family. Because they will need your prayers. And they will cherish your prayers. And your experience will be tied to them as well. The future of this church family depends on it. That's all that the psalmist was doing there. Let's read now the third and final section, Connecting with God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God then dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord is, God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. As the pilgrim continues his longing for God and seeking to be with God, he will and eventually does connect with the Lord. We find this as the pilgrim is overwhelmed by the Lord's favor and goodness. He sees his connection with God in God's grace and God's glory. He further recognizes that God, like the sun, is the source of his light that directs his path. And the Lord is his shield that protects him and God's people. These are expressions of God's favor and goodness. The pilgrim recognizes that God's intentions and God's interventions are always for our highest good, no matter how difficult they may be. Whether the Lord is disciplining us or allowing us to be sanctified by suffering, his purposes are always for our good. No matter what we may think, he is showering us with his favor and his worth. This is why the psalmist can write, better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And the psalmist ends this section with the final beatitude that in many ways is the big idea this morning. He speaks it to the Lord, acknowledging the truth of it. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Trust is the connection point in relationships. Trust connects us in relationships to others just as mistrust breaks that connection with others. The same is true with God. The big idea today is this. Trust is the rock bed upon which the waters of love and intimacy flow between us and God. Blessed is the man or woman who trusts God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and for your grace and for your overwhelming love. We thank you for being the great and gracious God that you are, holy in all ways, awesome and filled with power and might, and yet tender, loving compassion. We thank you, Lord, that though you are distant, yet you are available and intimate for us. And we thank you that you have shown us your favor and glory in the very person of Jesus. There could be nothing greater than your love for us through him.